for John Dillinger in hope he is still alive. Thanksgiving Day, November 28, 1986. Thanks for the wild turkey and passenger pigeons destined to be shit out through wholesome American guts. Thanks for a continent to despoil and poison. Thanks for Indians to provide a modicum of challenge and danger. Thanks for vast herds of bison to kill and skin, leaving the carcasses to rot. Thanks for bounties on wolves and coyotes. Thanks for the American dream to vulgarize and falsify until the bare lies shine through. Thanks for the KKK, for nigger-killing lawmen feeding their notches. For decent church-going women with their mean, pinched, bitter, evil faces. Thanks for Kill a Queer for Christ stickers. Thanks for laboratory aids. Thanks for prohibition and the war against drugs. Thanks for a country where nobody is allowed to mind his own business. Thanks for a nation of finks. Yes, thanks for all the memories. All right, let's see your arms. You always were a headache and you always were a bore. Thanks for the last and greatest betrayal of the last and greatest of human dreams. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Smoking on gas, got me slung. Chasing Z's, chasing Z's. I've been high up off my ass. Magic beans, magic beans. Flying solo, Mr. Dolo. What you mean? What you mean? Grab control and make it time. Do you read? Smoking on gas, got me slung Chasing Z's, chasing Z's I've been high up off my ass Magic beans, magic beans Flying solo, Mr. Dolo What you need, what you need Ground control to major time Do you read, do you read yeah. Well, I'm back in the game and I'm feeling myself Quick level up, now I'm building myself Every day, never taking breaks, killing myself Addicted to the gold, only focused on wealth Still slide to my 95 Just to buy the time till I'm on the rise Blasting off, I'm not asking wrong This ain't frat rap tale, the haters fucked off I'm shining, so blinding That's a vibe who got no diamonds Broke boy, got nothing in my wallet Spend all my green on the green quite often Still flawless, stand tall and Say fuck it to me, face calling Time to ride the wave, override the shade Inhale the haze, have a lovely day Yes, got me slung, chasing Z's, chasing Z's I've been high up off my ass Magic beans, magic beans Flying solo, Mr. Dolo What you need, what you need Grab control and make it time Do you read, do you read,
and happy Thanksgiving, bizarros. Yeah, I'm late, I know. This is a leftover edition. So happy Turkey Day. I hope everyone ate too much and is in complete gastro distress as you go through stores beating someone up over that $9 toaster at Walmart. So again, this is Gaz Morgan. Actually, it's not again. It's for the first time. I'm Gaz, and this is welcome to the uh, whatever podcast this is, a f- bizarro aficionado, of course. And uh, like I said, this is going to be a leftover edition because while you're scrounging through your fridge, I'm scrounging through my information junk drawer and I guarantee I have a lot of junk. All right, never mind. But uh, I'll be digging into my info fridge and pulling out some of these leftover articles that I've had as the uh, previous uh, episodes have gone and... uh, and uh, who knows, I have a glass of whiskey and uh, no idea whatsoever what this show is about. So if you're already bored by them, you should probably go watch, you know, The Rest of Us or uh, Just Us or Us or a Hallmark show or whatever basic white bullshit you're listening to other than my amazing show. So how is everyone? How was your Thanksgiving? The whiskey is good. So what should we get into today, kids? I tried to have some people on here with me because I'm not all that funny by myself, but it's the holidays and everyone is busy and you know how that goes. So I've dug up some things out of my uh, vault here and we're going to be talking about random Thanksgivinginess. So we're going to start with this from Atlas Obscura, why one Australian island celebrates Thanksgiving. I found this to be a little bit interesting, and the only one I have pre-read, so... (laughs) Yeah, we'll see how it goes. My daughter's not here to save me on this one. So, Norfolk Island is tiny, both in size and population. An Australian territory hundreds of miles from the mainland, it's home to fewer than 2,000 inhabitants. It has sparked blue waters, sparkling even, blue waters, unique flora. The famed Norfolk pine is displayed on their flag. You know, the Norfolk... Pine. I'm sure you're all picturing that right now. And a stranger-than-fiction origin story, which is right up our alley. The island was populated by the descendants of mutineers from the British ship HMS Bounty. You know, of the mutiny on the bounty fame. The British mutineers and several captive Tahitians had fled the nearby Pacairn Island in 1790, and by 1856 their descendants moved to the larger Norfolk Island, Or is it like Virginia? Do they say Norfolk? I don't know. The Islanders have long history of cultural melange, and with many speaking a combination of Tahitian and 18th century English called Norfolk, well, there it is, they also celebrate unique holidays such as Bounty Day and, strangely enough, an American-inspired Thanksgiving. While various harvest festivals and days of thanks fill fall calendars around the world, Norfolk Island... Thanksgiving is actually based on an American tradition. Norfolk Island has always been a stop for seafarers, from the island's first Polynesian inhabitants to 19th century American whalers. In 1887, one Norfolk Island resident, Isaac Robinson, yo, everyone knows Isaac, even became the American consul, making him a diplomatic representative, 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 words are hard today a diplomatic representative of the United States. 
One year, the story goes, Robinson wanted to celebrate Thanksgiving. He observed the holiday by decorating the pews of the All Saints Church with palm leaves and lemons, as one would. When Robinson died at sea, random, the Islanders kept up the practice, which was shored up by American sailors in later decades. These days, the tradition continues much in the same vein, although Norfolk Island celebrates the last Wednesday of the month rather than on a Thursday. The island's churches hold Thanksgiving services, the day is a public holiday, at All Saints Church. The pews are decorated with tall stalks of corn. Norfolk and church attendees place fresh fruit and vegetables along the aisles, a testament to the local practice of almost complete agricultural self-sufficiency. Despite the harvest symbolism, though, November is springtime on Norfolk Island. Why am I here where the air hurts my face? After the service, all the bounty is loaded onto tables and sold as a church fundraiser. Then it's time for feasting. Whether with the family or the community, the taste, T-A-S-T-E, all in big capital letters, Norfolk Island Food Festival, takes place annually during the week of Thanksgiving and includes the holiday's unique feast on the program. The Thanksgiving meal is a fusion of traditional Thanksgiving foods, Norfolk Island cuisine, Turkey is generally not on the menu, but cornbread is. Well, they had me at Island. There's pumpkin pie, but also multiple banana dishes. As Tom Lloyd, one of the Norfolk Islanders, told NPR, there's a banana pilaf, green bananas cooked in cream and dried bananas. You had me at in cream. Past celebrations have included a taste Norfolk Island banquet of roast meats. That's what it says, roast meats traditional Tahitian fish salad, corn, coconut bread, and salads. This year, festival guests will attend Thanksgiving Day church services before going to a local home for a feast. Well, that sounds delicious, because the one thing I am absolutely missing this year is an island and spring. What What is up with the weather? Why has it been cold for all of November? So it's going to be called November. It's obviously going to be called December, January, February, and most of March. So that's five months of winter. That's some bullshit. I'm sorry, but that is unacceptable. So, yeah, I don't like it. But I digress as I often do. Let's see what else we got in the drawer here. And unicorn farts because no holiday is complete. Until your dad or your uncle farts so badly that it clears the living room. So this unicorn farts beer is brewed with glitter and fruity pebbles. I, if it's made with fruity pebbles, it has me in whether it's got glitter or not. So this is uh, this is from popsugar.food. And I never knew I needed glittery beer in my life. But then I laid eyes on the aptly named Sour Me Unicorn Farts Beer. And now it's all I can think about. Made in Maryland in the, uh, by Duclaw Brewing Company in partnership with Diablo Donuts. <laughs> Where's Diablo Donuts? The sour ale is brewed with fruity pebble cereal and edible glitter, making for quite the gram-worthy cereal, cereal-inspired sip. The simmery 5.5% ABV beverage first made its debut for a limited time this past March, and Duclaw just announced that it's making a comeback in June of 2020. 
This would explain why I've been looking for it for a month and been unable to find it. It is amazing what you learn when you read the goddamned article. I digress. The brewing company revealed its beer's forthcoming return in the most glorious way possible with a Lizzo-inspired photo shoot. I said that wrong a couple. It's Lizzo, L-I-Z-Z-O-inspired photo shoot. Duclaw's main brewer and the owner of Diablo Donuts recreated Lizzo's viral Skittles bathtub photo. No idea what that is. By posing in a tub filled to the brim with colorful fruity pebble cereal. 32 boxes worth, to be exact. And Sour Me Unicorn Farts Beer. Whoever does this brand's marketing deserves a freaking trophy. Starting in December, Sour Me Unicorn Farts will be available for distributor pre-order in Washington, D.C. and the following states. Alabama, Connecticut, Delaware, Woot, Yeet, whatever I should say there. Florida, Georgia, Indiana, Maryland, obviously, New Jersey, New York, North Carolina, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Rhode Island, South Carolina, Tennessee, Virginia, and West Virginia. Because if nothing says marketable in West Virginia, it's unicorn farts beer. If the mental picture of tooting mythical creatures doesn't totally weird you out, did it say tooting? It did say tooting. Tooting. That's funny. Toot. Totally weird you out. You want to ensure your local liquor store sells the glittery beer come next summer. We advise chatting with those store owners and bribing, <clears throat> politely asking them to order the beer from their distributors. Ahead, check out these epic bathtub photos and then keep reading for some blah, blah, blah about unicorn. I'll put that in the show notes. And it has the, uh, the owner here. Um, yeah, in a bathtub, luckily wearing an apron, covered in uh, fruity pebbles and donuts. So, and life could be a lot harder than being in a bathtub full of fruity pebbles and donuts. I'll give you that. So let's see, digging, digging, digging. What are we doing? I need some more to drink because I'm going to get funnier as I go. Or maybe I won't. You're going to listen anyway. Let's take a look here. What do we have? How elephant poop becomes fancy paper in Sri Lanka. That's right. An elephant can defecate 16 times in one day, and it's 200 pounds of poop can double as paper pulp. I bring you only the best. Grown-up elephants can eat more than 300 pounds of food, mostly grass, twigs, foliage, and tree bark, in a single day. In the same period, they may defecate 16 to 18 times, producing over 200 pounds of dung. In Rodnia, a small village in the lower wetlands of Sri Lanka, not to be confused with a large village in the upper drylands of Sri Lanka, elephant poop is a renewable resource. You thought Delaware was boring. The sun-dried, deep brown dung piles up like haystacks in a painting by Claude Monet. That may be the single most beautiful description of poop I have ever read. Visitors could be forgiven for thinking that the poop is useless. <laughs> yeah. But at Eco Maximus, a manufacturer in Rodinia, it takes on a second life. More than 200 years ago, I... No... More than 20 years ago, 
A man named Thursita Renashinge saw some dung and had an idea. <laughs> you can't make this shit up. Uh, literally. He thought he could make paper from it, says the company's brand designer, Susantha. Karanarantnia, with a smile, at his office inside the company factory. Susan Guy wears a green t-shirt that says hashtag elephant dung paper and shows off some of the recent journal designs in the picture. On a table nearby, several women carefully design covers for multi-sized notebooks. On another, the finished product is packed and ready to be shipped. Today, Maximus creates a large range of stationery and souvenirs, which are sold in the local market and in 30 other countries around the globe. Eco Maximus was an early producer of elephant dung paper and the first in Sri Lanka, and refining the manufacturing process involved a lot of trial and error. Elephant dung is brought in by nearby rescue centers. Karanaranthane, uh, Susan Guy, says during a tour of the factory, Fresh elephant dung, semi-solid and green in color, smells. But after it dries under the hot tropical sun, the smell disappears. Unlike myself in the hot tropical sun, in which the smell only gets worse as I go. Collectors gather the deep brown fiber-rich piles in a piping hot steam boiler. Yum. How those leftovers treating you. We boil for one hour to ensure that the dung is germ-free, says Vibhatha. I'm not even going to try that next one. We'll just call him Vibby. The factory manager, wearing a pair of yellow gloves as he shows me a pile of boiling shit. <laughs> At least he knows his job's a pile of boiling shit. In one corner of the factory, bundles of paper with crumbled edges are stacked upon each, each other and one another and things. There are different colors, earthy tones, blues, tropical greens, and deep reds. Thousands of years ago, much of the writing in Sri Lanka was inscribed on stones. Later, the islanders wrote on leaves, such as the fronds from the palmra palm, uh, locally known as the tal. Palmyra leaves were boiled and sun-dried for writing, which was called puskola, or old leaves, says bright-eyed Radhika. These people are killing me. We'll call him Randy, who teaches biosystems technology at the University of, really? Uh, University of people over there. Uh, conventional papermaking began after Sri Lanka was colonized by the Portuguese, the Dutch, and then the British. Man, those three got around, didn't they? Holy crap, they're everywhere. Who referred to the island as Ceylon, that I've heard of. Most paper uses wood pulp as the main material, which is fibrous and rich in lignin and cellulose. That's right, when you get a diet meal or a diet drink and has cellulose in it, that's wood pulp. I think Slimfast was a big one that uses a lot of cellulose. So it's just expanding wood pulp. Good for you. It is prepared by chemically and mechanically separating fibers from wood, Jaya Singbei said. These chemicals are then released as wastewater. The problem is that nearly 4 billion trees are cut down every year to manufacture paper. Some are farmed, but others are logged from managed and old-growth forest. Since paper is biodegradable, we consider it to be eco-friendly compared to plastics. But it comes at a significant environmental cost. 
After the British left Sri Lanka in 1948, the local government opened 12 factories in the 1960s to utilize waste straw from rice paddies for paper making. But by 1993, only two of them remained. One of them was managed by Sharani Fairbanks. <laughs> Last name I can pronounce. I walked into the Export Development Board in Colombo, and by accident I saw a sheet of paper made from banana fiber, says curly-haired Fairbanks. Now I will now call them curly. Collecting a bundle of vibrant wrapping paper from her office table, it inspired me to start Trickle Down. Her company eventually moved beyond conventional paper making when they began using waste material tea refuse, banana skins, pineapple fiber to make paper. There's a huge demand for elephant dung paper products in the market, Fairbanks tells me, Curly. They have a unique aesthetic appeal, and many young people love. The company now sources paper from manufacturers around the country for their stationery, crafts, and other products. One of them is Eco Maximus. Back at the Eco Maximus factory... Uh, Witter Jernotny, the manager, so many people, there's so many people in this article. Mr. Unpronounceable One shows off a thousand liter cement tank known as the Beater. A rubber hose pipe water, a rubber hose pipes water into the tank from a nearby tap and an employee uses his bare hands to toss in steam boiled dung. Yum. Which now resembles a yarn ball made out of earthy fibers. This is the pulp we use for inner pages of notebooks, we Jernotney says. One-third of this pulp is elephant dung, while two-thirds of it is off-cut. Off-cut is two things, leftover paper brought from warehouses at Colombo, much like this episode, and remains from Eco Maximus's paper that has been leveled and cut in desired sizes. Finally, buckets of deep magenta liquid is added to the mixture. Eco Maximus also makes paper from elephant dung alone, but its fibrous texture makes it unsuitable for writing or drawing. So, maybe printing, like cards and shit? I don't know. In one of the last steps of paper making, a woman pours a jug of pulp into a thin metal mesh. The mesh is dipped in water, and she uses her fingers to mix the pulp for a few seconds, leveling it on the mesh while the water trickles down. This is for a... 150 GSM writing paper, where your genetic tells me. Using the industry acronym for grams per square meter, printer paper is usually less than 100 GSM, while business cards can be as high as 400 GSM. Two women hold the mesh up and press it into a slightly larger cotton fabric, which is laid flat on a table by a third woman. She then folds the fabric edges in and seals it, which creates a fabric pulp sheet. Smiling and chatting, they soon make a pile of sheets. We use this machine to compress the water out, says Karanatni, pointing to large electric machine. A middle-aged man manually... Really? They've named 75 people in this article, and this guy just gets a middle-aged man manually controls the machine. That's just sad which squeezes a bundle of fabric pulp sheets as water drips down. Now you can remove the cotton fabric and let it dry, says Kairun takes to a large section of the factory where colorful papers are neatly racked. Drying takes place under the asbestos roof. <laughs> yeah, these people. 
keep on the best life. As direct sunlight could bleach the blues, tropical greens, earthy tones, and deep reds. But mesothelioma makes the paper nice. Finally, two cherry, la cherry ladies, cheery ladies, also unnamed. They're just drones, obviously. Finally, two sad underpaid drones underneath an asbestos roof, all happy until they finally die of mesothelioma, stand by a large aluminum sheet iron, which smooths out the creases and rough edges one sheet at a time, while their lungs develop fibrous cancer. Ironing is the final step of raw papermaking, says Witterjadadonati. These paper sheets will be cut, leveled, and turned into stationery, much up to this pain and suffering of our employees. The transformation of poop into paper is complete. Outside in a neighbor's garden, outside the factory, I would expect that's where it is, outside the factory, it is about to start all over again. An elephant marches past, holding a clump of grass beneath its trunk. He leaves a pile of poop before he moves on. It will be turned into paper tomorrow, says Karanuhadhanathi, and she laughs. Right before she diagnosed with mesothelioma from the giant asbestos shit roof. Yes, I am a giant ray of sunshine today, aren't I? Ah, back into the vaults we go. What are we going to find? Let's do my top 10 movies for Thanksgiving. Top 10 Thanksgiving horror films. Let's dig down. I know I have it here somewhere. So I was picking out horror movies for Thanksgiving the other day. When I decided to rank in no particular order, hence the ranking, of the best horror movies to watch this Thanksgiving. It's dark in here. We need light. But for right now... So... I, right now, I imagine you're stuffed beyond your limits with yawn-inducing Thanksgiving whatnot and family-friendly feel-good films. I'm sure, you know, between Aunt Karen watching Hallmark and, uh, and your great Aunt Zelda watching some other horrible bullshit, you're sick of TV and ready for some pinky blinders or something like that. But... Now that you've gorged your face with turkey and pumpkin pie, it's time to gorge yourself on actual horror films that are fun. So, number one, again, in no particular order, Home Sweet Home. This is, uh, it's directed by Nettie Pena. And this Thanksgiving set slasher sees an escaped mental patient stealing a car and terrorizing a family during their Thanksgiving gathering. Which the family usually does anyway. Giving us an alternative Thanksgiving set slasher to choose... So I, I wouldn't call this a great slasher by any means, but it's really entertaining. The characters are often extremely, in, extremely inept, like finding a corpse in the driveway, and, and they still don't have the slightest clue that something weird is going on. The kills are inventive. It also marks the first role for actress Vanessa Shaw from uh, The Hills Have Eyes back in 2006. So if you only have room for one slasher this Thanksgiving, shame on you, but... It probably should be Blood Rage, but Home Sweet Home's a good second. But if you have room for two, I would really like, and would really like something upbeat and quirky, Home Sweet Home is definitely your go-to film. Uh, next up in number two is Blood Freak from 1972. That's a, uh, 
believe it's Brad Gainter, I think, and Steve Hawks that does Blood Freak. And it's it's a fantastically cheesy film, and it follows a drug addict who works on a turkey farm, as they do, often getting exposed to genetically modified turkey meat. He's turned into a crazed mutant human turkey, a.k.a. a man with a super fake turkey head on, who feasts on the blood of other drug addicts in order to fuel his own addiction. And it's kind of got like this M. Night Shyamalan twist at the end, and it's half horror, half a dare documentary. So it's definitely to keep you screaming with laughter. It's, again, not suitable for kids, just like none of these are. But uh, if you're just sitting around getting high or drinking, you should definitely watch Blood Freaks or any of these. Or, you know, just don't pass out in a pool of your own fluids. Number three, Feed from 2006, directed by Tommy Bertelson. Um, it, as the, it's the perfect deterrent to avoid overindulging on a holiday notorious for you know, for it, it feed tells the disturbing tale of a man who gets sexual satisfaction from overfeeding extremely obese women. That's right. You heard me just let it go. Believing he's actually feeding them to death. A sex crime investigator starts digging into the truth. I, trust me. I, you won't be asking for second helpings of pumpkin pie after watching this film. It is, it's pretty much my 600 pound life as a slasher film and it moving on next one would be poultry geist night of the chicken dead also for 2006. And this was by uh, Lloyd Kaufman of trauma fame. So you know what you're looking at here. So it's, it's chickens, not Turkey, but close enough. It's only a duck away from being a turducken, right? I mean, give me that much. So, as campy of a horror film as you would expect, a town builds a fried chicken joint on an ancient Indian burial ground. See? That's kind of Thanksgiving-ish. And the citizens soon face severe food poisoning and some seriously pissed-off zombie chickens. Who doesn't want to watch a movie about zombie chickens? It has all the fake vomit, over-the-top gore, and terrible acting you could ever want. All right, what's next on here? Ah, Blood Feast 2, All You Can Eat. This is a 2002, and it's a uh, Herschel Gordon Lewis film who is like the godfather of splatter films. So in the sequel, which is really more of a remake of the original 1963 Blood Feast, um, which is also the first film to ever feature blood splatter. Again, it's Herschel Gordon Lewis. If you are a horror film, especially a splatter or slasher film freak, you got to watch Herschel Gordon Lewis films. It's definitely an appropriate horror film for a day that revolves around eating. So after failing in under the control of Babylonian goddess Ishtar, falling under the control of Babylonian goddess Ishtar, uh, a man embarks on a very, very bloody murder spree, killing and cooking the women of the town to then feed them to other inhabitants. So bring your appetite for this one, and uh, it, it's a bloody mess. It's definitely a mess of a movie. You almost want to wear an apron just to watch this film. So this brings me to these two films, Thanks Killing and Thanks Killing 3. And these are both by Jordan Downey, directed by Jordan Downey. And 
yeah, you're just going to have to see them. So it starts with Thanks Killing, which is a 2009 film. It's going out of its way to be so bad that it's actually good. This holiday-themed horror is the perfect film to indulge in. It features a homicidal and foul-mouthed turkey that terrorizes five college kids who are home for Thanksgiving break. You can expect to hear the classic tunes such as I'm Gonna Drink Your Blood Like Cranberry Sauce and You Just Got Stuffed. Seriously, we... we or lines, not tunes, rather, but... You can't make this stuff up. It's too fantastic. Then its sequel, Thanks Killing 3, which is a 2013 film. And yes, that's right. It's three, not two. The maniacal, bloody, bloodthirsty turkey villain is back with a second helping of the horror comedy the fans couldn't get enough of. Seriously, it's raised its budget on Kickstarter. And yes, it's called Three, Not Two, like I said. Even more ridiculous than its predecessor, the murderous foul is on a bloody hunt to recover the last copy of Thanks Killing 2. And along his way, encounters an oddball group of characters, such as a rapping granny and a bisexual space worm. Nothing on earth will prepare you for the granny in this film. I will leave it at that. Next one, Blood Rage, 1983. This is a John Grismer-directed uh, film and tells the tale of a man who escapes a mental institution on Thanksgiving weekend, as you would. And this has all the excessive gore and gratuitous nudity you would hope to find in an 80s slasher flick. Its story is an afterthought, and you're looking for a horror film that serves up plenty of cranberry sauce, then Blood Rage is the obvious holiday treat. Next, Intensity this is a 1997 film directed by, uh, by, uh, who was it? It was Yucca Sumnu, I think. I could be pronouncing his name wrong. And it's of the Dean Koontz book, Intensity. A disturbed woman is trying to enjoy a peaceful Thanksgiving dinner with her friends when the holiday is cut short by a serial killer. That's like, like so often happens. Being the lone survivor, she soon learns that the man has a young girl held hostage and she becomes hell-bent on saving her life. If you like a bit more meat to your horror films, <laughs> no pun intended, this thriller is the perfect film to serve it up. So this has got a little more thought involved to it, where pretty much all the rest of them, uh, you have to be just barely conscious. And the last one we have here is Christie, a 2014 film directed by Ollie Blackburn. Finding herself alone at school over Thanksgiving break, a young college student soon becomes the target of a group of crazed outcasts. While it still has many of the typical cliché elements of the genre, Christie is a modern, action-packed film that will get your blood pumping, which can help revive you from that horrible turkey coma that you're uh, probably still in as you go back to the fridge. I saw you walking back to the fridge for yet another... Uh, Another plate of turkey leftovers, which will be terribly... Uh, oh, who had the parents that would make the turkey salad? Do you remember that shit? Like, they would take any leftover meat and they'd put it in the blender and just add some, like, onions and mayonnaise to it. And it was turkey salad instead of tuna salad or, or ham salad instead of tuna salad. Yeah, I had that. I don't know what was up with that. So how's everyone doing out there? Kind of putting this together, aren't we? I've lost my phone. Here it is. What is next? Let's dig a little deeper, kids. We'll put a couple more in here, and then we'll shut up and let you go back to drinking and eating the way it should be. Unless you're working today, and if you are, why are you listening to my podcast? Stop that. 
Go to work. Have you no work ethic? Oh, this one's a good one. Let me uh, bring this up here. So, of course, you know, the link isn't working. Why, why would I ever, you know, get this all set up beforehand? That's what not this is about. It's the leftover episode. That's right. It's the leftover episode. We don't know what we're doing today. All right. This is out of gizmodo.com. Infant skeletons wearing helmets made of other children's skulls stun archaeologists. As an archaeologist, or at least a former archaeologist, it takes a lot to stun us. We've seen some things, man. Some stuff. Wouldn't suggest it. But archaeologists in Ecuador have uncovered evidence of a previously undocumented funeral ritual in which the heads of recently deceased infants, for fuck's sake, were adorned with the skulls of other children. Oh, what a horror. Scientists can only speculate as to the reason why. The new study, published earlier this week in Latin American Antiquity, is understatedly titled Unique Infant Mortuary Ritual at Salango, Ecuador, 100 B.C. Unique. <laughs> it could certainly be described that way, couldn't it? I, archaeologists have previously documented ancient burials in which human body parts, including the heads, played an important ritual purpose. But this discovery in which children's skulls were used as helmets for dead infants is like nothing anyone has ever seen before. So this discovery was made at the Salango Archaeological Dig along the central coast of Ecuador in South America. A pair of burial mounds dated to around 2100 years old and belonging to the Guangala people were excavated between 2014 and 2016. A total of 11 individuals were found buried in the mounds, the most extraordinary of which were two infants adorned with quote-unquote helmets or mortuary headgear, end quote, were termed by the researchers in the study that were fashioned from the brain case or cranial vault of juveniles. So these are infants wearing teenagers' skulls. You can do with that what you please. Other bits of skull were placed around the heads of the dead infants, which was presumably done at the time of burial. I would certainly hope so. I like that the first advertisement for this article is for uh, device makes dull knives sharp, just in case, you know, you want to form your own teenager helmet. Anthropologist Sarah Junkst, the first author of the study and an assistant professor at the University of North Carolina in Charlotte, said that her and her colleagues were pretty surprised by the discovery, though she wasn't present during the original dig led by study co-author Richard Lunas an archaeologist from Universidad Técnica de Manabi in Ecuador. During the excavations, Lunas quickly recognized that there were two layers of skull. So to help with the preservation, he removed the burials with the surrounding chunks of soil intact. Junks told Gizmodo in an email, When I analyzed the remains in 2017, we actually finished excavating the remains in the lab, which led to the more detailed discoveries about age of the primary individuals and the extra crania. None of the graves were disturbed prior to excavations, according to the paper, and all skulls examined in the study were reasonably preserved, exhibiting the normal signs of degradation. The outer helmet-like skulls featured straight edges, which suggests they were deliberately cut, though only one cut mark was found, according to Junkst. 
I assume they saw that previous article and had really sharp knives. The first infant, designated Burial 370, was around 18 months old at the time of death and was fitted with a skull belonging to a juvenile between the ages of 4 and 12 years old. The second infant, Burial 339, was a... How is the first Burial 3... I don't know. Burial 339, I don't know. Was around 6 to 9 months at the time of death and fitted with a cranium belonging to a child between the ages of 2 and 12 years old. Neither of the infants exhibited signs of physical trauma and their sex could not be determined. Both of the juvenile skulls were still fleshed when secured to the infant's head. So, this kid dies. They kill another kid and put his head and face over the other kid? I don't know. When secured to the infant's heads. According to the paper, in both cases, the helmet skulls were fitted tightly to the infant's heads, and in the case of Burial 370, the outer skull was positioned such that the infant's face looked through and out of the cranial vault, according to the paper. Both outer skulls were made from the crania of juveniles, stuck juncts as being particularly odd. Skulls belonging to adults were regularly manipulated in different ways in the pre-Hispanic Andes, but child skulls were less commonly involved, he told Gizmodo. The scientists weren't able to locate the bodies of the juveniles, nor were they able to fully understand the exact nature of this apparent funeral ritual, which included the depositing of items around the body, such as extra bits of skull, and, you know, just in case you lose a part, stone figurines to play with, and other grave goods. The helmet skulls and bits of crania may have served the purpose of protecting and or further empowering the infants in the afterlife, who are perceived as having souls that were pre-social and wild, according to the paper. In other ritual contexts, children were perceived by many South American groups as having special importance, such as a 15th century site in Peru containing the sacrificed remains of 137 children. In this new case, no evidence exists that the infants were sacrificed, but clearly children were significant in moments of crisis, said Junkst. At the Salongo site, the burial mounds were found above a layer of volcanic ash, which may be linked to an eruption in the highlands and a consequent food shortage, though more research will be required to bolster these speculations. I wonder if they ate the kids. Maybe they did eat the kids. Ugh. <sighs> After dinner yesterday, I felt like I ate a child, an entire child. I'm, I'm, I digress. While the placing of skulls on the heads of infants might seem barbaric or grotesque, Junk said we need to cast aside our modern biases. For modern people who are horrified by these findings, I would remind them that our conception of death is based on our modern medical, religious, and philosophical views. Guangala people had their own conception of the cosmos and what happens after death and the significance of human bodies. While we are usually averse to handling dead bodies, there is a lot of precedent around the world of cultures who don't have this aversion. We need to think about things in our own context as much as possible and not be completely ethnocentristic and try to keep our own prejudices or ideas about right or wrong out of the analysis. Indeed, the reasons for these elaborate funeral rituals are likely more sophisticated and perhaps even more enlightened than they appear, 
as Junks points out, we need to stay open-minded about ancient people and their motivations. We just don't necessarily need to copy them. All right, kids, let's uh, let's take a short break. Everyone can go and mix another drink or grab another plate of food, and then uh, we'll come back for another story or two, and then I'll get the hell out of here and let you get back to uh, the family stuff you're really looking forward to. We'll be right back. So while we're on break, I just want to take a moment. This was really something I wanted to do for a long time, and to actually be able to do this took a lot when I started getting the kind of the bug in my ass that oh, I really want to do a podcast. I, I I had one computer. It was a 2008 MacBook that barely even turned on. It was more of a paperweight than a than any kind of an actual computer. So I, I really need to thank my buddy Dan Holding and uh, for really just being a really excited to to help me make this happen who gave me a desktop and a monitor computer and got it all set up for me and uh also a little laptop that I can use and help me figure out mics and equipment and I, I really can't thank Dan enough for doing that. Uh he also made the logo that's on the back of the t-shirts and uh from really vague here i i need a skull and a mustache and a bowler hat and uh there should be there should be a drink in there oh there's no more ice to clink but there should be a drink in there and a microphone and he just sat down there and poof came up with a really cool logo and so i a big thank you to dan thank you to everyone who bought t-shirts not only just for buying these 29 dollar kind of excessively expensive t-shirts which i did not make a huge bunch of money on i was able to get my own t-shirt for free so that's all i cared about it was like you know selling pot in the 90s but uh thanks for being excited about the show and thanks for supporting the show and it all really means a lot to me i'm not trying to make money off this show i don't expect to eventually have a thousand downloads per episode it's just something i do and i'm going to do it for as long as it's fun and people want to listen um, thank you to Rojan over at Project Archivist Podcast for just being at my beck and call and being around to teach me how to how to edit this monstrosity and when I would start out and end up screwing up the entire interview and then have to quick message him and go, Dear God, what have I done? He was there to be like, All right, calm down. This is what you do. Let me send you a couple of videos that explain how to do this. This is what we do on our show and you know, he's got a family of his own and a podcast of his own. And to be able to just want to donate that much time just to give back to the podcast community is huge. And that's really what the podcast community is about. There's a lot of brother and sisterhood there. And I'm really thankful for all of that. Um, also to Dennis and Dominic, the teenager, all for jumping in. Man, I when I was doing the... Uh, the episode before the wrestling episode, a teenager explains, man, what a boring ass episode. And I'm like, something, I need something to save this episode. So I call up the teenager and I'm like, Hey, you got to save me. <laughs> so luckily she was able to jump in and was as usual, the star of that episode. But being that it's the Thanksgiving time, I just wanted to put those thanks out there and, uh, 
you know, really say thank you for the people that have made this happen. And whether you like the show and or if you don't like the show, why are you listening, man? Get off my show if you don't like it. You've listened to your 10 minutes. No, I'm kidding. But, you know, whether this is one of your favorites or not, I'm just thankful for you being here. Even if you try it and you don't like it, thanks for taking a risk and trying it out. And I appreciate you. And we're back. So uh, I'll be a little break there. You can run to the bathroom and get another drink. A drink. What a fantastic idea. Uh, today I'm drinking Manhattans because I am an old man and I like old man drinks. So a little bit about the Manhattan. It was invented, they believe, in Manhattan. I could have looked all this information up, but I don't know what it is. And you don't care. But to make my Manhattan, I use a two to one ratio, two of rye, two uh, shots or jiggers of rye whiskey. I say jigger because I also am an old man. Two jiggers of rye whiskey and almost a full jigger of sweet vermouth and a cherry, which you can muddle or not muddle. It's up to you. Mainly, I just like whiskey in a glass, but uh, today it is Manhattan's and I like Rittenhouse rye, bottled and bond. It's like 28 bucks a bottle, but is still one of the best Manhattan ryes you're going to get unless you're going to spend a whole bunch of money. And in that case, why are you mixing that whiskey? All right. So I got two more stories for us here and uh, just some creepy Thanksgiving stories to kind of balance us out here from the rest of this crap. And I'll leave you in a nice spooky holiday mood. So these are all from five true scary Thanksgiving stories that were uh, posted to Reddit by Killer Orange Cat. And I, I didn't, I'm not going to read all of them. I'm just going to read a couple of them. They are very creepy. So uh, this one is called The Barn. This is a weird story that happened back when I was a teenager. My grandparents had a really small farm located on a, in a small hollow. It wasn't a commercial farm, just something they had to support themselves. However, when they got older, it was more difficult for them to maintain the farm. They quit using the barn. It just sort of sat there and was used as a storage area, mainly. Every Thanksgiving and Christmas, we would go out to our grandparents' house. The story took place on Thanksgiving. I was 15 years old, and that's the age when I began not enjoying hanging out with the adults in my family anymore. Suddenly listening to the stories of when I was a kid or when my parents were kids was just not all that entertaining anymore. We had Thanksgiving dinner early. It was about 2 p.m. Afterward, I was beginning to feel a bit antsy. I left my parents know that I was going to go and explore the hollow a little bit. It had been a while since I had done so. I didn't even think of asking my younger brother and sister if they wanted to go. It was fine because honestly, I felt like being by myself. I knew that I didn't really have a lot of time to explore before it got dark, so I set out and made sure I knew how far I could go and still get back before the sun had set. I didn't do the greatest job at it, though. If you've ever been out exploring in the woods, you might probably know what I mean. You get easily fascinated with the woods and the hills and lose track of time. It got very, very dark before I was anywhere close to being home. By the time I got back to the farm, it had been dark for at least an hour. I had never been out by the barn when it was dark outside. It looked incredibly creepy. Being a teenage boy, I of course liked scary things, and 
the thought then occurred to me that if the barn was creepy looking on the outside, it must be really creepy on the inside. So I decided to check it out. Getting into the barn was simple. My grandparents rarely locked the door of their house, much less thought about locking the barn. They lived in a really safe area where crime was pretty much unheard of. The barn did have one of those heavy wooden locks on it. I honestly had no idea what they were called, but I was able to pull the wooden beam up. When I opened the barn door, it made a horribly loud creaking noise. I knew my grandparents had likely not been in the barn for years, so I was surprised how I was able to get the door open at all. I figured the hinges had to nearly be rusted shut. As I mentioned, the barn was old, and even when it was in use, my grandparents would only have been in it during the day, so there was no light. Thank God that I live in an area of smartphones, an era of smartphones, though because I, of course, had a flashlight on my smartphone. Rattling paper. I turned on the flashlight and just marveled at the creepiness. If dark is creepy, then just a minor amount of light is much creepier. I was fascinated by all the tools, so many sharp implements. Most of them were hanging up. However, there was a small hatchet lying on a workbench. It was discolored, and on closer inspection, I realized that it was coated in what looked like dried blood. I don't know much about slaughtering animals, but I thought that my grandparents used to do it often. Chickens, pigs, and stuff. So I figured at the, you know, at the age I was, 14, 15, so I figured that the hatchet was used for that purpose, and they never cleaned it. The barn had a loft that was filled with hay. I decided to climb the ladder and check it out. When I was shining the light around, it reflected off something buried in the hay. I was wondering if it was another tool or something and decided to check it out. Going over to it, I began moving the hay. I screamed when the empty eye sockets of a long-dead corpse were staring directly at me. I fell backwards and nearly fell off the loft. I quickly climbed down the ladder and ran out of the barn without closing the door. I rushed into the house, told my parents and grandparents about what I had seen. My father, a huge man, like Hulk Hogan-sized, really went out to confirm what I had told him. My grandparents phoned the sheriff's office. The body had been in the loft for about three years. It had several hatchet wounds on it that the police told us were caused by the hatchet I had seen on the bench. The hatchet I had picked up. So not only had I found a dead body, but I had held an actual murder weapon in my hand. That was truly disturbing to me. But it wasn't nearly as disturbing as the realization my grandparents had that they had lived in the house for three years without knowing a dead body was in the barn. No one was ever caught, and we to this day have no idea who killed that man or why. Uh, this one's not titled. Uh, oh, yes. First Thanksgiving Alone, it's called. I moved out of my parents' house right when I turned 18. Nothing against them. I just wanted to live by myself and live in the city. I got myself a small studio apartment in Chicago. I had to work both the day before and the day after Thanksgiving that year, so I wasn't able to go home. Instead, I had a lonely day at home in my own apartment. I never cooked a Thanksgiving dinner before and didn't really think that I needed that much food, so I just got myself a big TV dinner. I really hadn't realized how lonely I would actually be, though. 
In fact, the loneliness was so overwhelming that I also began getting cabin fever. I think in actuality, I just wanted to be around other people. So after I had eaten my TV dinner, woohoo, I went out and went for a walk. It was cold outside and there wasn't a whole lot of people out. Since I had moved to the city, it was the first time I had not seen literally swarms of people everywhere. I walked around on the street by the bars but knew I wouldn't be able to get into any of them. I was out for quite a while before I decided I just wanted to go back to my apartment and be warm. So I headed back. When I got to my apartment, I put the key in the lock. I opened the door and went in. My apartment was a studio, and the only other room it had was the bathroom. Having walked around the city for a couple hours and not having gone into any buildings, I really had to go to the bathroom. I always kept the door closed. I went in and didn't turn on the light. I just used the light from the rest of the house. When I was peeing, I got the strangest feeling. <laughs> I have that. It's called your prostate. Oh, no, way, he's too young for that. I felt very uncomfortable and like someone has been watching me. My bathroom, strangely, strangely enough, had a window in it. It was actually on the wall of the shower. So I turned to look out the window and expected to see a bird or something. Instead, I came eye to eye with the form of a person behind the translucent shower curtain. It was a person and he was looking directly at me. Startled, I fell backwards. He opened the shower curtain. I scurried backward out of the bathroom. I made it to my feet and went for the door. However, before I got out, I felt the man grab me from behind. I struggled, but all he did was take me and throw me across the room. He then left the apartment and the door slammed behind him. I got up as quickly as I could and locked the door. I then phoned the police. Didn't do any good. Really, I noticed several times or several items from my apartment were missing. Apparently, the guy was a burglar and didn't expect me to come back. I just caught him in the act, and he likely wasn't intent on harming me specifically. Thanksgiving happiness. And let's see. You want to do one more? We can do one more. Let's see. Let's find a short one here that's fun and different. Alone, we did that, we did that. All right, let's try this one. This one's called Shelter. Now that Rolling Stones song is going to be stuck in my head. I come from a very good upbringing. My family had it very good, and I never really had to be without anything. I try to give back as much as possible. I donate a lot of money to the poor and things like that. One of the things that I am the proudest of is that on Thanksgiving, I volunteer my entire day, my entire day, at a local homeless shelter. Oh, they thank you for your 24 hours. I try to make sure that these much less fortunate people have a good day as possible for them. I stay in the shelter overnight, oh, well, my bad, and leave the following morning. Now, I've stayed in shelters and I've been homeless. I... It really depends on the shelter. I've been in some pretty horrific shelters. One of the sadder things about working in a shelter is seeing the same people there year after year. I mean, I guess seeing them makes me happy that they're not dead. <laughs> I guess whether it's that. But it would be nice if the majority of them were able to get themselves a place to live and not have to live in the streets anymore. <laughs> yeah, just like that. The Thanksgiving 10 years ago is one that I'll never forget. There's a lot of build-up to this story, so I'll apologize for that. The day and evening went as well as it could. 
And there was this one guy that I had never seen before. And normally I wouldn't even thought much about that, but he was very annoying and very rude. And at one point he even tried to take the food away from another man. There are predators, even in the homeless world. It's very tribal and lots of predators. Now the rules of the shelter were that I was supposed to remove the man from the shelter for such an act. However, I couldn't bring myself to do that, not on Thanksgiving, and I'm making up for my rich white person guilt. That doesn't say that. I instead separated the two men and let the guy know that any further aggressiveness and aggressive behavior would result in him from being removed. The rest of the day and night went fine, as far as I was aware. I wasn't paying attention because I was rich and white. However, at about three in the morning, one of the other homeless guys came into the office. He told me that one of the other sleepers had been stabbed. I ran out into the area, and sure enough, the man who nearly had his food stolen had been stabbed, and he was dead. I turned on the lights and searched around for the guy from dinner, and he wasn't there. I checked the bathroom, and the window was open. He had killed the one man and left as quickly as he could. The most horrific part of this was a man losing his life over something as simple as dinner, as simple as food. I don't understand. How would, why would anyone kill each other for food? It's not like he wasn't going to eat for days on end. Even worse for me was that the man would likely still be alive if I had followed the rules and removed the man during dinner instead of letting him remain because I was a pussy. That's right. All right, that's all I got for tonight. Let's uh, let's try and wrap things up. All right, thank you, everybody. Uh, this was a slop-shod, thrown-together little show here just to keep you... Uh, Keep me actually in your memories and to just say thank you to all the listeners out there. Thank you, everyone, for all your support. I hope you had a great holiday. Again, uh, if you want to help out the show, please uh, follow or subscribe, depending whether you get it from Apple or Podbean or one of the other 10,000 different ways you can listen. Uh, leave a comment. That actually helps me if you leave a comment. Even if it's like, hey, your, sl- your show sucked. Hey, cool. Thank you. Your mom's a whore. No, I didn't really say that. But uh, it, leave a comment. Good, bad. I like to learn. If there's something you love about the show, let me know. If there's something you never want to hear again in the show, even if it's me, leave that so I know. I like to know how many people are, you know, what people feel like, what's li- listening. Um, I've heard anything and everything from wanting the show to be shorter to wanting the show to be longer to, uh, you know, wishing I took a short walk off a long pier. So I will take anything. It all helps. And, um, if you want to send a message to the show or death threats, you can reach the show at bizarroaficionado at gmail.com. You can look up how to spell that shit. And, uh, I'd look forward to hearing you. And in the meantime your stomach pumped and stay bizarro Smoking on gas, got me slung, chasing Z's, chasing Z's. I've been high up off my ass, magic beans, magic beans, flying solo, Mr. Dolo. What you mean? What you mean? Grab control and major time. Do you read? Do you read? Smoking on gas, got me slung, chasing Z's, chasing Z's. I've been high up off my ass, magic beans, magic beans, flying solo, Mr. Dolo
Level up, now I'm building myself Every day, never taking breaks, killing myself Addicted to the gold, only focused on wealth Still slide to my 9 to 5 Just about the time till I'm on the rise Blasting off, I'm not asking wrong This ain't frat rap, tell the haters fuck off I'm shining, so blinding That's a vibe we got, no diamonds Broke boy, got nothing in my wallet Spend all my green on the green quite often Still flawless, stand tall and Say fuck it to me, face calling Time to ride the wave, override the shade Inhale the haze, have a lovely day Yeah, it's got me 